What is your greatest problem? Is it your health? Your job? Or joblessness? Perhaps your greatest problem is your children? Or your family? Perhaps your greatest problem is a lack of toilet paper? Perhaps some might think that's the greatest problem facing humanity today. The lack of paper. In all seriousness, what is the greatest problem facing humanity? Is it poverty? Is it equality? Is it a global pandemic? What is our greatest problem? The Bible very clearly, I believe, answers that question in one word, and that is death. You see, in the human race, there is a 100% mortality rate. Every human, one day, will die. Everyone. There's no vaccine, no cure. No drug, nothing that will prevent a human being from ultimately dying. No one is immune. There's no herd immunity, no innate immunity. Every single human being will face death. Until the Lord Jesus returns. The greatest problem facing humanity is death. And honestly, we don't like to think about death often. Only upon the occasion of perhaps the death of a loved one or a funeral. Do we ever let our minds begin to wonder about it? Because it is our greatest problem. And in John chapter 11, Jesus comes to satisfy man's greatest problem and demonstrates that he is and is only the solution to this great problem each and every one of us will face in our life. And apart from Jesus, death is our end. But in Jesus, life, eternal life, is our end. Well, chapters 11 and 12 serve as a transition point in the book of John. In the first 12 chapters, John organizes his material around seven signs of the Messiah. Beginning with the sign in Cana, water turned to wine. The healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The healing of the blind man, the feeding of the 5,000. The resurrection of Lazarus. Chapter 11 contains the final sign of the Messiah. And chapter 12 begins to transition us and point us forward in the in the narrative 
as Jesus' ministry comes to a close. And Jesus came for two purposes, not only to die for the sins of humanity, but also to display the Father's glory. In chapters 1 through 12, one could say the, the main idea is that Jesus came to display the Father's glory. And chapters 13 through 21 was to die for humanity. But chapter 11 also begins a, a new section, if you will, that you could bookend this book in, in the theme of resurrection. Chapter 11 begins with a resurrection and chapter 20 ends with a resurrection. And so the dominant theme throughout these final verses or final chapters is death that leads to life. Someone dies, but someone raises again. In chapter 11, it's Lazarus who dies and is raised again. And in chapter 20, it's Jesus who then raises again to new life. The theme that John is using to move this forward, this narrative forward, is death that leads to life. Death that ultimately leads to life. Now, if you think about that statement on its face value, it's an oxymoronic statement. Death doesn't lead to life. Death leads to death. Dead people die and they don't do anything else. But in the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the understanding of what Jesus came to do is that death leads to life. In fact, that theme, you could say, is all throughout the Bible. From Genesis 3 through Revelation 21, that death leads to life or judgment leads to life. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 were sentenced to death. God told them, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. But they didn't die. At least not yet. See, God would use what seemed to be the end as a means to bring about the end, which is eternal life. Well, with that in our mind, I want us to turn now to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a quite lengthy chapter. We will really hopefully, Lord willing, move through most of the material. Again, as you heard earlier, Pastor Rod really asking you and pleading with you to read ahead. This isn't just, uh, just so you're kind of reading the Bible, but, but rather so you have a fuller understanding when we come to the text. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. You see, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with, anoint, with anointment and, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, him whom you love is ill. But Jesus, said, but Jesus heard it. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not yet 12 days, hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. Well, as we think about this chapter, as we think about it in its entirety, if we were to, if we were to summarize these 50 or so verses into Perhaps one main idea, it is this. God is glorified and the effects of the fall overthrown through a death that leads to resurrected life. In other words, the raising of Lazarus by Jesus is a foreshadow, a glimmer of God's plan to conquer death satisfy his just wrath, and bring life to his people through the substitutionary death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus going to heal Lazarus is the tipping point in the story that ultimately, in a narrative way, led to Jesus' own death. If Jesus didn't go down to Jerusalem, if he hadn't gone down and healed Lazarus, then he wouldn't have put himself in jeopardy. And it was the healing of Lazarus which was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, for the religious leaders. It was enough. It was the, it was the tipping point. It was for them. It was it. Was it. We were, they were done with Jesus. And resolved in this chapter, chapter 11, To kill Jesus. And in this chapter we also see that the high priest Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus will die for the nation. 
an ironic statement. As we think about this theme, that death leads to life, that the death of Jesus leads to eternal life for all those who believe in him. We want to think about these sort of four aspects and, and really meant to boost our faith. Now, I want you to, I want you to see something here again. I, I just want to point out a particular theme that you heard. Look at verse 14. If you want to understand John's point, 14 and 15 is a good place to start. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. You might ask yourself, well, I thought the disciples already believed. How is it that the raising of Lazarus would would help further their belief? Well, this is the idea, remember. John is writing not merely to non-Christians, but to Christians. You see, John has you in mind in the writing of this letter to boost your faith, to strengthen your resolve, to, to, to sort of get you up and say, yes, Jesus is my only hope. You see, not only did Christians in the first century need to hear that, But Christians in the 21st century need to regularly hear that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We need to hear that every day. And so let's hear it now. I want us to look at four aspects. There's a number of scenes uh, that develop in this chapter. And we're just going to walk through them, look at them, and then think about what they're pointing to. And this theme of death leads to life. Is what we want to organize. So four aspects to this final sign. This, the sign of the resurrection. First we see its purpose. In verses 1 through 16. Uh, Jesus reveals three times the purpose for this miracle. In other words, Jesus doesn't just randomly call dead people to life. He has a purpose. It wasn't merely because he loved Lazarus. And just wanted to hang out with Lazarus a few more days. Before he himself would die and raise from the dead. But rather, Jesus had a purpose, and that is the glory of God. Jesus did what he did to glorify his Father. We see a second aspect in this is its significance. Again, Jesus isn't just healing. It it reveals something. Jesus raising Lazarus revealed who he was, who Jesus was. Thirdly, we see its power. Power of Jesus over life and death. Jesus is more than a mere man. And fourth and finally, we see its outcome. John tells us that many believe, but more than that, that the Jews resolved to execute Jesus because of this miracle alone. Well, let's look first in verses 1 through 16 at its purpose. The purpose comes there in verse 4, isn't it? This illness does not lead to death, Jesus says. It is... For the glory of God, so that, purpose statement, the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I've pointed out a few times, Jesus says that he has some hard things to say. I think verse 4 is a hard thing. Look at it again. Someone's death leads to God's glory. You see, God uses in his unknown providence the struggles of men 
to bring about his glory. The overarching purpose of the sorrow that we see in chapter 11 is that Jesus is glorified. That Jesus is honored and praised. You know, fascinatingly, as you think about this, this, uh, this chapter, I want to point you out to the, the, the main idea here. Look here at verse 1. Now think about this. John is writing to first century Christians. Folks that have some understanding of the gospel and have heard stories the gospel of Mark was one of the early gospels written and then Luke and Matthew wrote later. So many of these early Christians would have known these stories, but notice they don't know who Lazarus is. Look with me again at verse one. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. For John's readers, his first readers, They knew who Mary and Martha was, but they didn't know who Lazarus was. Now, if you think about this, the main point of this story is that Lazarus is dead and Jesus brings him back to life. Now, if you think of all the stories you know in your life, like cool stories, miracle stories, things that have happened to you. Like you were driving and you were in a car accident and God miraculously saved you from that car accident. And you tell that story every Thanksgiving to your family. No one told the story of Lazarus, a man who was dead. And Jesus spoke a word and he came alive. Why? Because the story wasn't about Lazarus, but about Jesus. You see, the resurrection that was to come in chapter 20 far eclipsed the resurrection of Lazarus so much so that early Christians didn't even know who the guy was. In fact, Mark and Luke and Matthew, they don't even record this miracle. If I was writing, this is the coolest miracle I think maybe I'd write about. Unless there was another resurrection that was greater and far significant. Because you see, Lazarus died again. He didn't live forever. He eventually died. But there was one who was raised from the dead the son. You see, this is the purpose of the sign. The purpose was not to glorify Lazarus. Look at verse 4 again. So that the Son of God might be glorified through it. You see, the way we tell miracles, and frankly, the way we test, talk about our testimonies. Boy, I was this rotten, horrible, sinful dude. Boy, man, I used to party it up. Boy, we glorify sin rather than the Savior. See, Jesus never acted to glorify man, but to glorify himself and his Father. And we see here in this section the purpose of this sign is to glorify God. Now, Jesus is acting quite strangely, if you, frankly, right? And so John has to help the reader out. So he has verse 5 there to help, help us out. He said, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why does John say that? Because Jesus is about to act anti-love. Right? I mean, if, you're, if, if he really loved him, why didn't he run down there and save him? If he really loved, Jesus, if you really love me, you'll answer my prayers. God, if you really love me. See, so often we project on God our view of love. But Jesus here, he just hangs out for two more days. Why? Purpose statement. 
I did this, I waited so that, verse 14 or 15, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. You see, Jesus was not only glorifying himself, he was helping his disciples. We heard our brother earlier mention patience. The Lord teaches us patience so that we trust him more than us. That's what I alluded to in the prayer of prayer petition. What this pandemic has done, I believe, is unsettled us in a way that has, I think, just shined a glaring light on our false theology about the sovereignty of God. Well, we love to, we, we almost like, like it's a badge of honor, like, I believe in the sovereignty of God. No, you don't. You believe in your own sovereignty, your own ability to control the future. Your own ability, my own ability. I'm not just pointing the finger at you, but we try to control. And when control is taken away and chaos ensues where people are ripping over boxes of toilet paper and chaos, silly chaos, it unearths our own belief. We're in control. Jesus here has a greater purpose. Jesus here withholds, doesn't run down there to the rescue for the sake of the faith of his disciples so that you might have greater faith in me. Sometimes Jesus takes us through some very dark places and difficult and, I mean, unnecessary, it might seem to us. Martha and Mary are broken over their brother, weeping uncontrollably. Jesus could have prevented it all. He doesn't. Because God's purposes are greater than our purposes. The purpose of this sign we see is to lead to his glory. Verses 7 through 10, we have this saying of Jesus where he says to his disciples, listen, I am the light of the world. I'm going to walk in the light. I'm not going to be afraid. This is really the idea there of Jesus' statement to them about the light, not stumbling. In other words, Jesus' point is this. I'm in control of my fate. And that's very important for you and I to understand that what happened to Jesus was not a terrible accident. That's what liberal theologians want us to believe. That it was just a terrible end of fate, that, that it didn't have to end this way. No, no, you see the Son of Man is saying here in verses 7 through 10, I am, I am the light of the world. I'm walking in the light. I'm doing what I want to do. No one is controlling me. I'm not afraid of the Jews. I know that ultimately they are going to murder me. I know ultimately I will die, but Jesus doesn't hide out. He's not afraid. He's not hiding under some rock. He's going to go down there to Jerusalem knowing his own fate. In the Gospel of John, there's also often these double meanings. John loves to have sort of double meanings to to the text. So you see example of that in verse 16. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. In other words, they knew that if Jesus was to go down to to Lazarus, that he ultimately would die. He knew the fate. But the double meaning says that though Lazarus died, he lived. And though Jesus will die, he also will live. 
Friend, Jesus reveals the purpose of this miracle is to glorify God. He has come to reveal the Father's glory as, as John chapter 1 and verse 14 reminds us that we have beheld His glory, glory of the only Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who came to reveal the Father's glory. And we see, secondly, the significance of this sign laid out for us in verses 17 through 37. We heard a bit of the disappointment from Martha there at the beginning. As Jesus travels down in verses 17 through verses 27, he's first met by Martha, and then later Martha will call Mary her sister. And all of us know Mary. We'll get to Mary next week. Mary was the one, we were told, anointed the feet of Jesus, and spent that expensive ointment to, to prepare his body for death. Martha and Mary are disappointed in Jesus, to say the least. Both of them say essentially the same thing. If you were here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. They thrust upon Jesus their own disappointment in him. As if they could control Jesus. As if they had some sort of, as if Jesus just randomly went around and healed everyone that he saw. That's, that of course, wasn't Jesus' ministry. Jesus didn't heal every blind, every lame. Jesus didn't call forth from the graves everyone who was dead. No, there was immense disappointment because Jesus wasn't living up to their idea of a Savior. And so often for us, we want immediate salvation. Don't we? We see this most when we think about debt, financial debt. So often we want quick answers to to serious problems, right? If we have a lot of debt, uh, perhaps consumer debt, the problem isn't, man, it's going to take me a long time to pay this off. The problem is I need to stop buying stuff. If you have a ton of consumer debt, it's because you keep buying junk and you put it on credit cards. So often we want quick fixes to bigger problems, don't we? And this is what Martha and Mary wanted. They wanted a quick fix To a bigger problem. Because even if Jesus healed Lazarus. Even if Jesus uh, made a blind man see. Even if Jesus healed a lame man. The ultimate reality was. Their problem was still. They were going to die. So Jesus reveals. In verses 23 and 27. The significance of of the miracle of chapter 11. Look with me there. Jesus says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her, do you believe this? See, Mary had a belief in the resurrection of the dead. She was was a Pharisee, just like every other Pharisee. Who believed the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees knew their Bibles and they knew their Old Testaments well. And there was breadcrumbs in the Old Testament of, of eternal life that was to come, a resurrection, a, a future day. Mary and Martha believed in that. But here Jesus says, No, there is a greater resurrection than that final resurrection. And he says, I am that resurrection, I am the source of eternal life. Now, in the subsequent chapters, we will get a better glimpse at what this life really looks like. 
Particularly as Jesus teaches his disciples in chapters 14 through 17 about the blessed life, this eternal life that we have. Jesus is saying that this miracle is meant to point to him as the source of life. That by faith in him, all those who believe in him, though they die. In other words, Jesus doesn't say that when you believe in him, you just miraculously get sucked up into heaven. He says, though he die, there, there's still a physical death that, that you and I will face. Unless the Lord returns, of course. But there is a hope of eternal life. This is what we heard earlier in 1 Peter. The hope of eternal life. This is the, the hope that you and I have. That though we face physical death, that we will spiritually live forever. Notice what he says also here. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, Jesus here brings eternity into the present. Eternal life is not a future reality, but a present one. New birth that we learned about in John chapter 3. That great change that happens where our souls are transformed and the lights come back on. And death brings life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that, that eternal life has begun. That though he die, yet he shall live. Well, that's about a most oxymoronic statement anyone could make. He's dead. How is he living? Because he has eternal life already. This is the hope we all have in death. Well, as the story unfolds, we see Jesus growing in greater anger and hostility. Now, you'll remember what I said at the beginning, that God is glorified and the effects of the fall overthrown through the death that leads to life. In other words, there's great significance because what John is doing and what Jesus is, is doing in time is pointing to what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross is an overthrow. A great battle is being waged. Look here at verses 33 through 37. In this section, we see that as Jesus begins to, to see Martha and Mary weeping. We've already been told he loves them. He loves Lazarus. It's a reminder that Jesus is fully man and fully God. He felt human emotions just like you feel. Notice here a couple of things. Number one, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping... He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word there, deeply moved, has the idea of indignation, anger. Oh, Jesus, my goodness. A little cold, don't you think? Be angry with people crying over their, their lost brother. You see, Jesus wasn't angry with them but with what resulted in the death of Lazarus. We've already been told in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the creator. 
that he is the one whom created the world. But he created this world perfect and good and without death. See, death came into the world because of Adam and Eve's sin. Sicknesses and viruses and illnesses and death are a result of the fall. The pain and sorrow that you and I face every day in this broken, fallen world was not how it was supposed to be. God created it good. And so Jesus' anger here is is pointed at and toward the broken fallenness of this world. He, He sees them broken and he's greatly troubled by it. So much so that we're told in verse 35 that Jesus wept. A very different word wept than the weeping of Martha and Mary. You see, Jews in the first century, when they wept, boy, they wept. They wailed and cried and they just put on a big show. Though it wasn't a genuine, it was genuine. It was a, it was a bit over the top. For us Americans, we would think it like, you need to get yourself under control, friend. It's all right. People die every day, right? We're often very cold and callous when it comes to death. We hold back our tears lest someone think we're weak. But here Jesus wept. as a genuine expression of the pain in a fallen world. A world he knew was once good and right, but who had been marred by sin. He was grieved that death had entered the world. But his grief did not end there. Now you want to think for a moment. Jesus is is seeing this. He's moved by it. He's indignant by it. He's frustrated. He was weeping. Yet he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. You see, the raising of Lazarus wasn't a mere parlor trick. uh, An attempt to gain respect. It was ultimately about revelation. It was revealing who Jesus was. One who had power over life and death. And this is what we see, right? In verses 38 through 34. Again, notice verse 38. Jesus is deeply moved. Three times now, John has emphasized Jesus' emotional estate. He's moved. Moved by the fallenness of this world. Moved by the death of his friend. So he commands Martha, take a, get that stone moved away. Martha's like, that's going to stink, Jesus. He's been riding away four days now. And with a word, Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb. Did I not tell you, Jesus says in verse 40, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You know, there's a lot of people in the Bible that wanted to see God's glory and never did. Moses. Elijah. Elijah was like, I just want to see you. That crazy Jezebel's trying to kill me. I just want to see your glory and I'll be happy. Nope, I ain't seen it. He says to her, I told you you would see my glory, and I'm about to show you. You know, fascinatingly, Martha and Mary, they're the ones that are the first witnesses to the resurrection. 
They had themselves experienced the resurrection of foretaste. They got, a, they got a little taste of it there that day in chapter 11. And then they would see it in all of its glory in chapter 20. Fundamentally, the point is this, that Jesus has power over this world's greatest enemy, death. Jesus' power is displayed not by his fanciful creations, not by some miraculous kind smoke and mirrors and all, but by a simple word. He is the word of life, after all. And by his word, he brings life where there is death. By a simple word. Verse 41, so they, they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said to the Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped the cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. A couple comments before we move on from this particular scene. Number one, I want you to see the brevity of the scene. We've already moved through 37 verses. Leading up to this wonderful, miraculous scene. And John only paints a very small picture. Why? Because the point wasn't that a dead man got out of that tomb. The point was that another dead man was going to get out of another tomb. See, John here is, is again just giving us breadcrumbs of what is to come. That there is going to be one who will overcome death and the brokenness of this world, devastated by the effects of sin. The one who had the power to speak life into dead Lazarus was the one who would die and would be raised again himself. So much so that, that you remember Martha and Mary when they visited Jesus' tomb? They didn't find a man who needed help unbinding himself. They didn't find a man there that was trying to fumble around, trying to get the, the shrouds off. They found the clothes laying there. One who had authority and who could unbind himself. One who was not bound by death, but one who had power over it. Well, the final scene, the final scene here, very quickly in verses 45, 45 through 55. So 45 through 55, we see the outcome of the sign. We see that many believe in Jesus, we are told in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And you and I are like, of course they did. Of course, if I was there that day, I would have also. Oh, Really? But some of them, but some of them, he says, went to the Pharisees like little rats and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? I love this, this scene. Just get the, be there, like put yourself there. Listen, you know what just happened. A guy who's stinking up the, the place just walked out of a tomb after being dead for four days 
And these guys have the audacity to say what they're about to say. For this man performs many signs. If we, if we let him keep on going on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, there's nothing like, nothing like Jesus messing up your plans for life, isn't there? They're going to come and take away all of our stuff. They're going to take our toys away from us. Everyone's going to believe in him, they say. We can't have that. We can't have our political power. We can't have all of this great, posh world we have and this comfortable life. You see, Jesus is an uncomfortable savior, to say the least. He, he does not meet this world's expectation of what a savior should be. Frankly, I mean, the fact that he waited two days to go see his buddy Lazarus would probably be enough for you to say, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He seems like a jerk. No, but you see that, as I said earlier, this was the tipping point. This was it. They had had enough. Jesus, we're done with you. We're not going to let you keep on going on like this. You have to die. And so we see here that they resolved to put Jesus to death. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now I want you to think for just a moment. Use your brain. From what day? The day that Jesus healed a dead man. That was enough. From that day, they made plans to put him to death. You see, the miracle of Lazarus was what ultimately led to Jesus' own death. This final sign, the final sign of death to life, would lead to his death that would lead to life. Jesus would die not for his own sins, not because he had done anything wrong, he was innocent, but to die the death we deserve. What we see revealed ironically in the words of the high priest Caiaphas is he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. I want us to hone in there for a moment. We're going to deal with this more next week, but I just want to look very quickly at it. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Well, you and I get it. Ironically, Caiaphas knows the gospel better than most. That Jesus Christ is going to die. Now for Caiaphas, it was politically expedient. It, was, it would really move things along. Let's just sort of kill him quickly. Because if we don't kill him, then the Romans will kill us. So if one guy dies, then the whole nation doesn't die. But, but we see John interpret it, don't we? John says, well, really, what is going to happen is that, yes, Jesus is going to die for the nations, but not in the way you understand it. Jesus is going to be the 
physical death that will bring about spiritual life to those who deserve death. You see, the Bible, beginning in Leviticus 16, and I think even earlier in in Genesis chapter 3, teaches us that God's wrath is satisfied through the death of another. In Old Testament Israel, it was the death of the lamb, sacrificed instead of the people. Lamb dies, people saved. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus dies and the people are saved. And notice here also a hint at what we learned last week in John chapter 10. That Jesus would die not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Remember what Jesus said, I have some sheep who are not a part of this fold, and I've got to bring them in also. Jesus Christ would die the death we deserve for our sin. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Friend, do you wonder why death is our greatest problem? Because we're sinners. See, our sin leads to death. Not not that our individual sin sin leads to our particular death, but that that our sin, the, the end of sin, God in His grace doesn't let man perpetuate their sin forever. We would expect everyone to be elated to see and hear that a dead man comes to life, but not these religious leaders. Not this world. This was the final point. In their life that they decided that they resolved Jesus must die. But it pointed to this deeper truth. That his own miracle would lead to his own death. Not the death that he deserved. But the death we deserved. Friend what is your greatest problem? It is death. And I hope this morning. That the spirit of God. Would bring that into your mind today. That death is your greatest problem. problem we all face and Jesus is the only answer to it the only answer it seems tried it seems simple but we come back to that question that Jesus asked Martha and I ask you do you believe that Jesus is the only answer the resurrection and the life and that all those who believe in him that though they die yet they shall live The raising of Lazarus is a foretaste of our own resurrection. Or Jesus will one day come. And he will speak to the tombs of every one of his children. Everyone who believed in him. And we will come to life. The resurrection of life. And life everlasting. Friend, do you believe that this morning? The message we need to hear in the midst of such hopelessness of this world is that Jesus is the only hope. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we would know you better. That we would know that Jesus is our only hope. As we so often sing, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. A full atonement, not a partial atonement, not a, not a partial forgiveness, not a just forgiveness from, from all of our past, but all of our future. Satisfied, your wrath satisfied in the death of your son. 
Father, I pray that we might grasp that today. Have a better sense of not only our own sinfulness, but the greatness of our own Savior. And we ask this for your glory and our good in Christ's name.